today's episode, World War II Operation Pedestal in the Mediterranean Sea. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Sir Max Hastings, author of Operation Pedestal, The Fleet That Battled to Malta, 1942, to be published by Harper, June 1st, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. It's a pleasure, Chris, always. Yes. And um, and I'll mention to my audience that uh, we have done two previous um, interviews about your book on the Vietnam War and on uh, the Dan Buster's raid, and, and I encourage my audience to go back and and listen to those um, for bio information, that sort of thing. And I'll also say that uh, I received a copy of the book, and, and I love it. It's uh, it's not often I can call a military history a page-turner. I mean, they're all interesting, but this is uh, – I'm amazed by the amount of information you're able to pack into a smooth-running, enjoyable narrative that just keeps going. So I just wanted to mention that to start off with. It's sweet of you to say so. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, I love it. Um, especially the naval aspect. Um, so tell me, how did you, um, why did you start writing a book? You've written a lot of books. So why write this one? Well, writing is what I do, but I'm always trying to think. I'm always trying to come on stories. But first of all, I don't feel too many people know. And secondly, that as a reader and as a military history buff, that I would love to read. And this is one of them. This is one of these uh, naval stories I've never written before a whole book about the Navy. I've written quite a lot about uh, the U.S. Navy and the Pacific. Uh, I've, the Navy's come into a lot of my books, but I've never done the whole bit. And I just wanted to write a, a whole story. And I love the fact that this story, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. And also, it happened at a time, one of the worst vices that can happen to you as a, a, a reader, never mind a writer, is that because we know how the Second World War came out, we start thinking that they all did. And in August 1942, it was the exact midpoint of the war. The Germans had just got to Stalingrad, and the British government and the American government did not think the Russians were going to be able to hold. They thought that the Germans were going to win on the Eastern Front. The um, British Army had just taken one of its worst beatings of the war in North Africa. It had been driven by Rommel right back almost to the gates of Cairo, and a lot of people, including again General Marshall and the U.S. Chiefs of Staff, they thought the British were going to be kicked out of the Middle East. And so you've got this last bastion that the British are holding in the middle of the Mediterranean, the island of Malta. Now, a lot of, uh, of hard-nosed people on both sides of the Atlantic thought, well, does Malta matter anymore? In the end, what's going on on the Russian front is much, much more important. If the Russians can hold, then what happens to Malta doesn't matter. In the same way, the United States forces and British forces were planning to land in North Africa within three months. Well, if that came off and Rommel was driven back, then none of this was going to matter. But what Churchill, Winston Churchill, part of his genius as a war leader, he understood that war is not just about numbers. It's a, a, a battle of wills. Mm -hmm. And at that time, British prestige, especially in American and Russian eyes, had fallen very low, that uh, a lot of people on both sides of the Atlantic were asking, uh, have the British still got any will to fight? That mm -hmm. um, a lot of American opinion polls showed Americans thought that the British were really putting up a pretty pathetic show. Um, the Russians, Stalin in Moscow in August 42, Stalin um, taunts Churchill. He said, your Navy runs away because a big convoy had just been chewed to pieces in the Arctic. So Churchill figured that no matter what the math said about the importance of Malta, it was absolutely vital as a matter of will that the British should show they'd still got the guts to hold on to Malta. Mm -hmm. And so he gave the order to the Royal Navy that several of their convoys, which had tried to relieve Malta, had failed. They'd been sunk with heavy losses. Uh, they'd not got through. And Churchill said, you are going to fight a convoy through to Malta at any cost. Mm -hmm. And to do that, uh, the Royal Navy assembled the largest fleet uh, it put together in the, um, the, in the Western theaters throughout the whole war. 
four aircraft carriers, two battleships, seven cruisers, um, 30-something destroyers, a dozen submarines, the whole works. Mm -hmm. um, fight this convoy, 14 merchantmen, through to Malta in the face of um, Italian and German submarines, Italian and German torpedo boats, and more than 600 German and Italian aircraft all around the Mediterranean coast mm -hmm. so that um, they knew sometimes when a fleet went out to fight in the Second World War, whether in the Pacific or in the, in the, in the Western theaters, you never knew whether you were actually going to meet the enemy. Mm -hmm. This time, they knew that they were going to have to fight, and they knew they were going to lose ships. And it was a, it was a pretty serious call because uh, the, the British only owned seven aircraft carriers. They'd already lost four mm -hmm. in the Second World War. And up there they were putting four of them on the board to try and get this convoy up through to Malta. Anyway, on a Sunday in darkness uh, in August 1942, these merchantmen escorted with this enormous fleet. It's not a convoy, it's a fleet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, more than 50 ships, all told, sneak through the um, Strait to Gibraltar into the Mediterranean in darkness. Now they're hoping that the Germans won't see them. Well, the Germans couldn't see them, but the Germans had terrific infrared technology on both sides of the Straits of Gibraltar, and they saw that fleet. They didn't know exactly what it consisted of it. They thought, among other things, that the American carrier Wasp was part of the fleet, because Wasp had worked with the British a month or two earlier. Mm -hmm. They weren't quite sure, but they knew this was something big. So here you've got um, all these ships sailing forward on this brilliant sunshine. One of the things about whether it's the Mediterranean or the Pacific, when you've got this lovely weather, it sort of mocks you if you think you may die that day because mm. um, uh, there you are, you're looking up at the sky and it's so beautiful and the sea is so blue and um, it all looks so lovely and yet you know that this is the day you may have to die. Mm -hmm. And there are some things that fascinate me about fleets. One, on shore, um, if you're a soldier, you have a bit of a choice whether to be brave or not. <laughs> and in every battle that you get a few guys who are incredibly brave who lead the charge and you've got a lot more guys who sort of come along somewhere afterwards and some guys who never get out of the trench. Mm -hmm. But at sea, you don't have that choice that you are completely at the mercy of your captain. If your captain decides to be brave that day, then the other 200 or 700 or 1,000 men on that ship, they've all got to be brave too, whether they like it or not. Mm -hmm. And I'm also fascinated by the courage all those engine room crews, because you look at, at uh, the casualties in every naval battle, and the first guys to go are, of course, the engine room crews, because they're down below. Mm -hmm. And how are those guys stuck at it, when all the time, every minute, when they were um, uh, turning wheels and uh, uh, pushing dials and feeding furnaces, and all that time, they're thinking there's just two or three inches of steel between them and the ocean, and they know what's going to happen if a torpedo or a mine uh, or a bomb uh, comes in. Mm -hmm. Well, the first day was pretty quiet, the, the 10th of August. And um, that evening of the 10th of August, that uh, the Germans did send over some bombers, but uh, it wasn't terribly serious. And uh, they just made a sort of token appearance, dropped some bombs at high level and went off again. And everybody sort of looked at each other and they thought, well, if this site's going to be, well, maybe this is not going to be too bad. The next day, uh, things got much more serious, but you may want to pause before I tell you about the next day. So, um, well, I do want to mention a point um, at the beginning. Uh, you do mention the Ger what the Germans were thinking and their approach uh, to all of this, and then you also do the Allies as well. Um, so a couple points there. One, it's really interesting how much Hitler just saw this as a side, just a side adventure that, that he was focused on Russia, um, and, and also how easily they could have just succeeded and taken Malta if they had if they had pushed for it and two I want to ask how much do you balance the German uh, or the Axis and the Allied approaches throughout the book do you continue that well I'm one of the things I'm always trying to do again uh, every day when I sit down at my screen at my keyboard I'm shutting my eyes and I'm thinking now what can I tell people they don't know already and a lot of it is still about the other side so in several of my recent books, I've worked a lot with the German and the Italian stories. Um, now, one of the things about all wars, I mean, I never stop being amazed in our own times 
how lousy our intelligence still is about a lot of stuff uh, going on in Iraq or Afghanistan or what the Chinese may be up to and so on. And this was even more so in the Second World War that when this huge fleet entered the Mediterranean, the Germans and the Italians, they knew this was something big, but they thought they cannot be sending a fleet this big just to trans run this convoy through to Malta, that this has got to be something bigger. So are they going to do an amphibious landing in North Africa? Are they trying to run this convoy all the way through to Egypt? Um, so they knew they were looking at something big, but they weren't quite sure what it was. All they knew for sure, you're absolutely right, that Hitler never took the Mediterranean seriously. The only reason he got there is because Mussolini had had these grand ambitions in the Mediterranean. And Mussolini, every time he tried a campaign on his own, then the Germans had to step in and save him. And where Hitler made a lousy call in the Mediterranean, I've argued in some of my other books, that if Hitler had really got a bit serious about the Mediterranean, if he sent Rommel two or three more divisions, um, I think he could probably have kicked the British out of North Africa. And I think that uh, it could have, the war could have looked very different because I think the British people, if Churchill had presided over another big defeat, if, if the Germans were in Cairo, uh, I think that the British uh, Conservative Party might have uh, evicted Churchill from power. I'm speaking with Sir Max Hastings, author of Operation Pedestal. You can find more information about his work at maxhastings.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. If you're interested in interviews with writers such as Andy Weir and Martha Wells, please check out my website, fullcontactnerd.com. If you're interested in interviews about space topics such as SpaceX and astronomy, please check out my website, technologyandspace.com. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So... I think Hitler made a bad call by not putting more forces down. I, either he should not have got the Mediterranean at all, or he should have really gone in a bit bigger. But he didn't. He, he compromised all the way down the line. But he did see in August 1942 that it was critically important uh, to, as a matter of prestige, if nothing else, to stop the British getting this convoy. So he also saw it was the best opportunity his people were ever going to have of sinking a lot of big, British warships, because they knew you were going to have these this huge British fleet sailing straight through between German and Italian bases, which were only 100, maximum 200 miles away, mm -hmm. which is in brilliant sunshine. And all right, the British have got carriers with carrier fighters. But one of the things, although the Royal Navy was very good, it was nowhere near as good as the US Navy mm -hmm. at carrier warfare. And having studied both the U.S. Navy and the, and don't, I'm not knocking, the Royal Navy did many things very well, but uh, carrier operations, the, the Americans did brilliantly. Mm -hmm. And their carriers were bigger, uh, they carried far more aircraft, they um, op operated them much more quickly, they um, got them taking off and landing much more quickly. They handled carriers and carrier operations much better. Mm -hmm. The British, before the war, had been obsessed with battleships. And we had an embarrassment of battleships uh, in the Second World War. And we never had enough carriers. And the aircraft that the British flew off them were not very good. So when these German and Italian aircraft started appearing over the Operation Pedestal Convoy, mm -hmm. that these poor old hurricanes, which had done all right in the Battle of Britain, but they are really struggling to get up to altitude to engage these German and Italian planes. Mm -hmm. So when things start getting serious on day two of this convoy, that, um, yeah, the Germans and the Italians are really trying, and they're committing hundreds of aircraft and a lot of U-boats. And although now Hitler's eyes are still fixed on, Hitler had in the Mediterranean one of his best generals, Kesselwing. Mm -hmm. And it was always, from August the 11th onwards, the second day of that convoy, you're about four or 500 miles from Malta. And you've got a real cliffhanger. Because on the one hand, if the, if the Germans and the Italians win this one, if they can turn back this fleet, then it's a great prestige victory for them. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, if the British do manage at almost any cost to get this convoy through, then it's a great prestige triumph for them. So both sides have got everything to play for. Mm -hmm. um, but August the 11th 
it's it sort of started off quite well for the Brits because one of the carriers flew off um, 36 fighters, Spitfires, to Malta to reinforce Malta's air defences. Mm. And that all is going pretty smoothly. And all these guys are standing around on the ships um, watching uh, all these uh, Spitfires taking off from the carrier Furious. Mm. When suddenly they hear these thunderous explosions and everybody looks, starts looking the other way and they see that the carrier Eagle um, has been hit wham, 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 wham mm-hmm. by four torpedoes from the German U-boat U-73 mm-hmm. and the Eagle tips over and is gone within eight minutes. It turns turtle. And it was a huge shock that there were a lot of guys who afterwards testified about their experience on that trip. And they said up to them, some of them were stupid enough to think this might be a bit of a holiday. Mm. After they'd seen Eagle go, they knew this was deadly serious. So if I can uh, it just uh, mention um, quickly, one, one of the, I don't know, juicy maybe is the word for it, uh, the juicy facts that fill this book. And, and I'm only I'm only maybe a quarter of the way through and already it's it's just I, I love it. Um, just the fact that you're it's not just Navy, but it's the Navy air arm as well. And, and British carrier operations and just carrier operations in the Mediterranean is just, it, as you say, something that people don't know about. And that that's another reason it makes for an amazing read. Well, it's um, from that moment when Eagle went down. Uh, I mean, they had a. A not great afternoon that, that that afternoon, but nothing more terrible happened. One merchant ship was hit, mm-hmm. and there was another sort of air raid. But August the 11th, everybody went to went to sleep, knowing that worse things. Because every stage, every day, every mile they advanced mm-hmm. was bringing them a mile nearer to the German and Italian airfields. So they knew that if the 11th had been lousy to lose one of Britain's seven carriers, that um, the next day, the 12th, they knew it was going to be worse, and the 12th was one of the worst, the toughest days of the Royal Navy's war. And it was just an endless succession of air and torpedo attacks. And they just kept coming and coming, mass formations of German-Italian aircraft that, um, and of course, every gun on the ships. But one of the things you learn, and I was always interested to study all this, Mm. actually, anti-aircraft fire, as the United States found off Okinawa, it can sometimes put pilots off their stroke, but anti-aircraft fire doesn't shoot down a lot of enemy aircraft. It's fighters that do that. Mm-hmm. And there were never enough fighters that the British, through that day of the 12th, uh, they'd aimed to have uh, 12 to 24 fighters in the air. But they were up against formations of up to 100 German and Italian aircraft. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were making heavy weather of this. And uh, all that day, um, they're taking a hammering. By tea time, although they'd been fighting hard, two U-boats have been sunk, rammed by British destroyers. Two mm-hmm. Italian U-boats have been rammed and sunk. Um, everybody had fired a huge amount of ammunition by about tea time, by about um, four o'clock in the afternoon, five o'clock in the afternoon. Although everybody was terribly tired and they'd fought off all these attacks, nothing very terrible had happened. But in the ensuing 12 hours, it was absolutely unbelievable, the succession of blows. First of all, German Stuka dive bombers mm-hmm. go for the carrier um, Indomitable, uh, one of Britain's newest and best carriers. Mm-hmm. And uh, just an endless procession of Stukas come in, bombing at almost vertical. And again, the anti-aircraft gunnery hardly had any effect on them at all. Wham, wham, wham. Three bombs hit Indomitable. And although the British, unlike the Americans, one of the things the British got right was they put armored flight decks on their carriers. Hmm. And that's what saved Indomitable. It took three hits. It was wrecked as a carrier, and everybody thought for a while it was so she- so shrouded in smoke and flame. Everybody thought that Indomitable was going to go the same way as Eagle. Mm-hmm. But no, Indomitable came through, and after 15 minutes of incredible tension, with all this smoke and flame pouring, and they suddenly get the oldest lamps flashing from mm-hmm. the uh, from the signal bridge of Indomitable situation under control. <laughs> the relief uh, for everybody from the Admiral downward. So Indomitable was badly hit, but um, it wasn't it wasn't destroyed. But at that point, uh, the Admiral in charge, Cyprus, uh, he decided that now they were getting so close to the German-Italian uh, air bases, he had to turn his big ships around. So at that point, he gives the order to turn his battleships and 
his carriers around. The rest of the way to Malta are about two or three hundred miles. They're going to be escorted by um, by the cruiser force and the destroyer. Well, that sounds great until just after the um, Seyfried and his big ships had turned around. Uh, an hour or two later, suddenly there they all live. An hour of peace and quiet. Nothing terrible has happened. And suddenly, wham, wham, wham. An Italian submarine delivers one of the most devastating salvos of the war, mm. a submarine called Axum. Very brave uh, Italian. You know, everybody thinks the Italians are just a joke. Some Ita- the Italian fighters, they were very brave. And this Italian U-boat commander, he got in really close, and he fired, he hit one torpedo, wham, hits um, the cruiser admiral's flagship, Nigeria. It doesn't sink, but it's crippled. It's got to turn back for Gibraltar. Another torpedo, wham. It's another cruiser, Cairo. Cairo, they decide, uh, uh, is, is unsavable. They have to scuttle it. Another torpedo, wham, hits the most vital ship in the convoy, the tanker Ohio, American-built oh, tanker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The, probably, thank God, the most strongly-built tanker in the world. And what that ship went through in the next 48 hours is nobody's business. But here this ship takes a torpedo, flames shoot up, everybody thinks, good God, tanker on fire, everybody's had it. Miraculously, they're able to put the fires out, and Ohio is hit, but it's still there. But that salvo, wham, wham, wham. But then, just when they're sorting themselves out, and the admirals transferred his flag to a destroyer, and um, they're, they're picking up survivors from the cruiser, and there's absolute chaos. Nobody is looking properly at the radar screen. Oh. Suddenly, in comes another. This is almost sunset, and ter- terribly dangerous time. And all the carriers have gone, so they haven't got the air cover. And in comes another um, uh, Italian and German air attack. And it's absolutely devastating. Wham, wham, wham. They sink in quick succession. Three merchantmen. Um, it, it was devastating, the amount of damage they inflicted. And this point, uh, sunset on the August the 12th, what this fleet has already suffered, you feel uh, the sort of day they've had, the sort of week they've had, but it wasn't over. Anyway, you were going to say, Chris. So um, how uh, quickly would information on what was going on get back to, you know, the command, basically back to the governments um, in Washington? Communications were never great. Mm -hmm. Um, But the toughest part, Winston Churchill was then in Moscow meeting Stalin. Mm. And the decision to send this fleet had been entirely his decision. And there he is in Moscow having an incredibly tough time with Stalin, who one of history's uh, greatest bastards. Um, and Stalin is giving Churchill a roasting mm. about the British failure to uh, land in Europe, to do all sorts of other stuff, to run their convoys through. So Churchill is having a hell of a day in Moscow. And suddenly he's handed this signal. And this signal tells him. The signal is not quite right. But the signal tells him that one carrier has been sunk, mm. that um, um, another carrier has been badly damaged, not known if it's going to survive. Three cruisers have been hit. Their condition is unknown. Um, Ex-merchantmen have been hit. And it was about as as ghastly a signal as anybody could have. But this is one of the things that made Churchill the great war leader. He he was very, very upset, but he couldn't afford to show it at that stage. All he said was that he wanted every signal more about pedestal to be brought to him on the highest priority, which they were. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, for those guys... I mean, I, I, I always, when I'm writing these books, I close my eyes and I think of those guys on all those ships, both the merchantmen and the um, escorts. Mm-hmm. I think after a day like that, when they've seen so much carnage, so much death and destruction, uh, all these ships going to the bottom, and yet they've got to go on. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't surprising that, you know, I recorded in my book how some guys were now, the few of them were able ever to get to their bunks, but they were sleeping in their life jackets. And one guy wrote a pathetic letter I quoted uh, to his fiance saying, well, now I'm carrying um, our house keys and my money and my pen and my watch up everywhere I go. Because this guy clinging to his pathetic little possessions because he thought his ship was probably going to be the next month to go. But those guys, darkness falls. They, they can see the sky is lit up with the flames of all these ships that have been um, damaged and and they're still heading on and on. And they have about another three or four hours 
in which nothing new and terrible happens. <laughs> and then after that, when? This time, it's an Italian and German torpedo boat. And they launch a succession of attacks over four hours in the darkness, mm -hmm. which, again, absolutely devastating. And one British cruiser um, is hit, it survives, but um, it plowed, it was hit in the bow, and it plowed so deep after being hit into the waves that uh, waves washing up over the bridge. And you can imagine how, and they, no, they thought it wasn't going to come up, they thought it was just going to go on diving, but miraculously, it did come up, and the Kenya, the ship that was hit, survived. But then another cruise is hit. And this time, it's very badly hit, and the captain decides it can't be safe. And he orders that only two or three miles off the coast of North Africa. He, he says, well, uh, he said, if we abandon the ship now, everybody's going to make it to the uh, coast of North Africa. And so he ordered the ship to be scuffled. Well, um, this was a very humane decision. But Churchillian Crusades were not won by humane decisions. Mm. Uh, when the British eventually got this guy back, he was court-martialed, and he was convicted of having failed to do enough to, sink, to save his ship, because at those days, all right, the captain probably made the right call, that if he tried to keep going at sort of seven or eight knots, that come daylight, the Italian and the German Air Force would have got the cruiser anyway, and uh, probably a lot of his guys would have gone to the bottom. But in the way things were then, you're in the middle of a war. The court-martial took place in February 1943, and this guy was uh, never given another seagoing command. Mm. And uh, several of his officers were also uh, uh, convicted by the court-martial of dereliction of duty. So that was two cruisers um, clobbered uh, already that night. Then they started hitting the merchantmen, and another three merchantmen, wham, 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 including two American merchantmen, um, are hit by these e-boat torpedoes, and mm. uh, they too are abandoned. And so everybody is still sailing. The sea is so calm. And they're looking out at the sea, and all they're seeing for miles is flames. And they're seeing people jumping into the flames, and they're seeing all this stuff. And the, the sort of miracle was that the Ohio, which had been slowed down by the damage, the tank, which was absolutely vital, this American tank had got to Malta. Mm -hmm. And the Ohio had been slowed down by her damage, so she was behind. And so she missed the e-boat attacks, the um, up torpedo boat attacks. But it was still a terrible, terrible night. And in fact, um, Admiral Burrow, who was the admiral in command at this point, he admitted freely the next morning. He said that those hours um, of, of, of between midnight on the 12th and the hours that followed were probably the worst of his, of his life. Mm -hmm. Although you have to, when you're on a ship, and you're being watched all the time. And one of the stories, one of his sailors testified um, that afterwards, that in the morning when daylight came and um, a signaler brought up in the radio room, the report of the ships that had been sunk in the night, read the roll call of the ships that had been sunk in the night. And the Admiral had been talking to the captain of the, of the destroyer um, about, about sport, about football. And, um, he broke off the conversation, listened to this, and he said, uh, very good, thank you, and then returned to talking about football to the captain. Now, of course, the reason the Admiral did this, he knew that there were hundreds of ears flapping all around him, and morale was very fragile, and so he was having to display an Olympian calm. But it's pretty tough when you're told that uh, two of your cruisers uh, have gone to bottom during the night, and uh, all these merchants, and still, you've got daylight on the 13th, and they're still within easy range of um, the German and Italian air bases. Mm -hmm. It's the same story, the 13th, that, uh, that, again, by this time, when you're reading the story, never mind writing the story, you think mm -hmm. this can't go off. Yeah. It does. And the first air attack of the day, the biggest merchant from the convoy carrying all munitions, explosives, and so on, and a dive bomber gets this ship, Weimarama, and uh, a bomb hits Weimarama, it blows up. And all the ships around, they see this huge ship, this colossal explosion. And the ship behind it couldn't stop or swerve. The ship following it has to um, sail straight into flames. 
And all these guys, some of the guys on the ship behind, jump into the sea because they're horrified at the idea of going into the flank. But the bravest people in all this, the Admiral sent a signal to a destroyer. You've got the sea on fire for a couple of square miles around where this ship has exploded mm-hmm. because of a lot of fuel on it. And the, and the Admiral sends a signal to this destroyer. A lunatic called Roger Hill was a commanding officer, but uh, a very brave lunatic. And he says, uh, survivors, but don't go into the flames. Um, Hill takes no notice. He drives his ship straight into the flame with his crew playing hoses uh, to keep the flames at bay and pulling these guys out of the water. And at one point, they see one guy in the water with the flames all around him. And the ship's cook, a guy called Charlie Walker, comes up on deck where he's been cooking. He's wearing an apron. And he's the ship's swimming champion. And he's their captain, their water polo chief. And he takes a look at this, and he pulls off his apron, and he dives at the spear person, saves this guy from the flame. Wow. And those people did, and they, they pulled 40 men from those ships out of the water, this destroyer. And God, it was so brave. Um, but, uh, but the best bit's still to come. I'm speaking with Sir Max Hastings, author of Operation Pedestal. You can find more information about his work at maxhastings.com. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. If you're interested in interviews with writers such as Andy Weir and Martha Wells, please check out my website, fullcontactnerd.com. If you're interested in interviews about space topics such as SpaceX and astronomy, please check out my website, technologyandspace.com. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So I think it's important to emphasize that there were, I think, in the thousands of civilians working among these ships. It wasn't just military people. It was, you know. You've got maybe at the start of all this, you've got the best part of maybe uh, um, a thousand plus uh, uh, merchant seamen, uh, American and British, uh, on these ships. Mm-hmm. And yeah, they're civilians and they're not, uh, no glory there because um, um it's not surprising. All those merchantmen, from the minute they entered the Mediterranean, their lifeboats were swung out on the davits all the way through that battle because they knew statistically that a report showed that every merchantman that was hit, torpedoed or mined or whatever in the war, sank within an average of 15 minutes, many of them as quickly as eight minutes. Mm. So you knew that if you were in a merchantman, especially in the engine room, you probably had just that much time to make it into the water, into a boat. And after that, you were going to go to the bottom of the ship. Mm-hmm. And so these guys, uh, it wasn't surprising, there were several cases of, of people taking the boats uh, a bit ahead of time. And uh, in fact, in one case, the destroyer captain, when one lot of, uh, of, of, of engine room crew from one of the merchants uh, rode to his destroyer and asked them to take him aboard, the, the crew rather cruelly um, kicked their hands kicked their hands away as they tried to climb up the side, said, you will get back in that boat and you will row back to your ship and you will continue to man that ship. So some people had to play rough. But the best part of the whole story was this amazing tanker, Ohio, which is is one of the most wonderful stories I've ever... Because Ohio, by uh, the morning, uh, well, on the morning of the 13th, Ohio is attacked again and again uh, by this ship had already been slowed up by being torpedoed and so on. And it's attacked again and again and bombed. And by lunchtime on the 13th, it's got one crashed uh, Stuka um, on one end of the ship mm. and another crashed Italian ship on the other end of the ship. And um, yet somehow this ship is still going, but its engines pack up. So the destroyers that are escorting them, and they're now about 150 miles from Malta, and they're absolutely determined they're going to somehow get this ship with this vital oil and aviation fuel through to Malta. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're dealing with a floating bomb there if things go wrong. But this tanker, American built, a couple of years old, was probably the strongest ship of its kind in the world. It was compartmentalized so that it had been able to take this incredible amount of damage and it was still there. And these destroyers, they try all which ways of trying to tow it. And then they decide that the only way to do it is to lash a destroyer, one to each side and another one in front, and mm. just drag this hull because it was 
slowly sinking into the Mediterranean, the last 150 miles to Malta. And that is what they did. They dragged the ship. And I mean, what went on during that dragging? Because, of course, they're very conscious at any minute that if U-boats can come back, the torpedo boats can come back, the dive bombers keep coming back, and they occasionally have to cast off the toads while they deal with the dive bombs. So, miraculously, um, they only have one more bad hit, which didn't sink Ohio. But everybody is so exhausted. I mean, some of the destroyer crews get on board Ohio, and they think it's Christmas, because, especially in darkness, when none of the officers are watching, they get into the storerooms, and they find Ohio has been stored in the United States. And so it's full of food of the kind they haven't seen since the war started, those sort of pineapples and things like that. And then they get a, then they find the drink. And these guys, I mean, you know, some of them got very, very drunk. I'm sure. And who can blame them? Um, but somehow, there they were. Oh, and they also found aboard Ohio a crate of party hats from some Christmas thing. So some of the guns crews on these ships, they pull off party hats. And there they're going through these last um, uh, 24 hours to Malta. And just inch by inch. And every now and again, the German Air Force and the Italian Air Force turn up against. But by now, they're just within range of Spitfires coming out from Malta to give them some air cover. And somehow, miraculously, they make it through to Grand Harbor. And on the morning of the 15th of August, uh, on the Saturday, um, that Ohio is dragged in front of huge cheering crowds and bands playing and everything else. And this Hulk um, is dragged into Grand Harbor. When they get into the harbor and they just get it to its birth, and then the minute they uncouple the pumps, whoop, it sinks to the harbor bottom because actually it's just the Hulk. Um, but they've got it there. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, they get, I forget, about 80% of its oil and fuel. They're able to go ashore. Malta survived. The British Army, uh, a couple of months later, last managed to win a victory. Um, and it, so the story has a wonderful, happy ending. But all the way through, you keep wondering if these guys are going to make it. Yeah. And there's so many and, and there's so many little facts that are just just wonderful for anyone who's into naval history. Um, you know, yes, you, t- you told the basic story, but there's so much, so much little, little details that are so... Like, for example, the... Um, the Royal Navy jeering at the Royal Air Force, you know, who were the heroes of the Battle of Britain, and now they they were mocking them. Well, they mocked. Uh, no, um, Air Marshal Tedder, who was actually, he ended up the war as Eisenhower's deputy in Europe. Mm-hmm. But Tedder was probably the best of British airmen, but he described at uh, one moment the, the prestige of the Royal Air Force had fallen so low in the Mediterranean um, that uh, when he came out of the Muhammad Ali Club in Cairo one night, a load of drunken sailors were booing and jeering. This is the most senior uh, RAF officer in the Middle East, and they're booing and jeering him and just saying oh, the RAF is no effing good. Mm-hmm. And, and he was very sensitive to all this because at that point, again, one just has to keep remembering, August 1942, nobody was as shocked. They thought with American and Russian war, the story was probably going to be all right. But boy, it looked a very, very long haul to the end of the line. Mm-hmm. Where did you find, um, I noticed you, there were a lot of quotes from memoirs and diaries. Um, where, where did you find all of those from? A lot. I was very lucky. There were one or two lovely naval historians who, um, one of the things about people sometimes talk about jealousy between, I find historians incredibly generous mm-hmm. to each other. And there are one or two British historians who sort of devote their lives almost to researching pedestal and to Mediterranean convoys. And they lent me all their files and they gave me a huge amount of stuff. And of course, they've been able to interview a lot of the survivors of that story, which of course, when I was younger, I was able to interview everybody, Waffen SS people and naval officers, Noriega, but nowadays they're all dead. Mm. So you're dependent on accounts. But there are wonderful accounts. And um, it's um, and the other thing actually, which I found terrific, I put up on my website. There was a war correspondent called Anthony Kimmins, um, who became quite a well-known British playwright after the war. Mm-hmm. But in 1944, he was with Pedestal, and in 1944, he made a propaganda film on the story of the uh, the, the convoy, um, which is there in the Imperial War Museum. And I put up a chunk of it on my website, maxhastings.com, because. It's got 
terrifically vivid shots of uh, the fleet uh, sailing on Pelistor. And uh, of course, because it was a propaganda problem, Andy Kimmins says in the commentary, he says, we all felt terribly privileged when we were told that we were going to be sailing on this convoy to Malta. Well, actually, most of the people I know about who were absolutely scared out of their wits <laughs> and uh, they'd rather have been anywhere else. But one of the things about the Royal Navy and the war, um, they took beating after beating and they came through and they came back. Mm. And the sort of courage that people, and one has to remember about the British Army and the US Army, most of the US Army and the British Army were not really engaged until sort of 44 ish. Um, more than half the British Army was training in Britain. Sure, a bit of it was in the North Africa and so on. The US Army, everybody knows about the Band of Brothers Screaming Eagles, but they were training for two or three years before they first went into action on D Day. Mm -hmm. Well, Russians and Germans didn't have that luxury, and the Royal Navy. They were fighting from the first day to the last, and they'd um, they'd seen some of the greatest ships in the fleet go to the bottom. That the British had lost even before Pearl Harbor. The British had lost um, a lot of cannibal ships, carriers, and battleships, and so on. And my admiration for those guys and what they went through and what they did. That uh, I'm never quite sure. I never really believed with that stuff about them being the greatest generation. Because, which of course is the, the American phrase, the greatest generation. I think there's a generation to whom the greatest things happen. Mm. And I'm naive enough to think that in our own time, if young Americans or young British people were asked to do that sort of stuff again and they believed in the cause, I think they'd do it and do it well. Mm. Um, so I'm not persuaded that that wartime generation, I think the only thing one can say, which, which, I sort of wonder about a bit. The word duty meant a huge amount to that generation. Mm. And again and again, you come across people who did um, amazing stuff because they felt it was their duty. I'm not quite sure. Nowadays, there's a slight tendency to laugh about the idea of doing your duty and so on and so forth. But it's, it's, it's no longer such a fashionable word. I mean, for instance, in another book, I mentioned an episode in the Arctic, when the Royal Navy was running another murderous convoy in the Arctic through to Russia. Mm -hmm. And a cruiser called Edinburgh um, was um, badly hit and obviously going to sink. And there was no chance of getting the engine room staff up before she went. And the senior engineer officer happened to be when she was hit on the upper decks. And he said, I won't leave my people. And he deliberately while all the others, the people on the upper decks were being taken off, he went back down to the engine room mm. to die with his people because and stuff like that happened on pedestal. And the and the and that's something that sense of duty and that sense of of doing what it, it's so moving still. We're lucky we've never been asked to do that mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But uh, gosh, so what? Uh doing the research for this book, what, what uh, did he come across that most surprised you, considering you've done so much research in the past? I think it's, uh, I mean, for a start, the sheer, I mean, the discomfort and the exhaustion of fighting day after day, because people think you're on watches. I think the U.S. Navy operates the same system as the British. You do four hours on, eight hours on. Hmm. Um, and uh, that, in theory, that sounds terrific, but actually then you overlay on that action stations uh, every time anybody attacks you and so on, you end up, most of the people on pedestal in the four or five days thought themselves lucky to get two or three hours literally sleeping beside their guns. Mm. And I think I had one advantage because I was a war correspondent with Falklands War. Mm. I need to. So I've seen ships sink and I've seen air attacks and I've seen what it looks like. And I think one of all the ways to, there's something about most of us are naturally land animals. And again, the courage of those engine rooms, crews, and the courage of all those people who, I mean, I think if I'd seen happen what happened to some of those ships in the early stages, I'd want to turn around and go out. Mm. Uh, and most of them stuck to their duty in the most extraordinary fashion. Uh, but, uh, 
But it was, but it was funny. I, I remember it was in the, um, in the Falklands War when the Argentine Air Force were attacking it. And they were still using a lot of the same guns they used on pedestal. They had focus guns and frame mm-hmm. guns and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you found, in that sense, I found quite often when I was writing pedestal, my mind was going back to remembering how it looked when you see those aircraft coming in. And actually, it does make people vengeful. Um, I came across one uh, story in the pedestal story when mm-hmm. Roger Hill's crew, they, they saw a pilot come down the sea and they turned the destroyer to pick him up. And then they find that it's not a British pilot, as they hoped, it's actually a German pilot. A lot of the crew were shouting, throw him back, throw him back. Well, they didn't throw him back, but nonetheless, that was the move. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I always remember again the Falklands when an Argentine pilot bailed out over um, over the airbound, over the, the, the battle that was going on. Mm-hmm. And everybody's feeling pretty sore. We watched a couple of ships blow up and so on. And everybody in sight started blazing away at him. And uh, this guy on his parachute, which is not very sporting, but that's the sort of mood people can get into when you're scared and you're all hyped up. You've got a gun in your hands. Mm-hmm. So, so having seen ships sink in combat and also um, air attacks, what what about each of those do you think would surprise people? Like you can you can rush you can think about it intellectually, but but emotionally, is there something? I think it's the willingness. We are, on the whole, um, we live in very risk-averse times. Um, that everybody is, in Britain, we have something called health and safety. We don't have anything quite the same, but health and safety is always rushing into China. And the fact that Churchill could take this colossal gamble and could put at risk all these ships, um, the blow to British prestige, um, if those two battleships and another one or two of the carriers had been sunk, which they could well have been, so the tension all the way through, it was, it was, and for the Admiral in command, Admiral Seifert, to know that if he came out with a disaster, with, with, uh, having lost, uh, two or three of his carriers, he only lost one. But I think the courage to launch such an operation and the courage to see it through. And you don't, uh, where my admiration for Winston Churchill is so great as a war leader and for Franklin Roosevelt was they kept hammering on, even in the face of these terrible losses. And nowadays, the temptation to say, oh, well, this is getting too nasty. Maybe maybe we should just give this a miss and go home. Mm-hmm. And these guys, they kept on and on and on. And um, no one's admiration for all that is, is terrific. And I found, here am I, I know the story, I know how I did. And yet all the way through, I was sort of almost biting my nails and thinking, are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? Mm-hmm. So of all the stories in the book, was there one that, that struck you the most emotionally? And we've talked about a bunch. I, I think one of the things about navies, and in this respect, the U.S. Navy is the same as the British Navy. They alternate between the minute that the shooting stops, they resume the rituals um, of the Navy uh, with the, uh, the whistles and the pipes and the uh, parades and so on and so forth. And after Indomitable had been badly hit, and that evening that most of the surviving crew who were not on duty paraded to bury, they had 50-odd dead, mm. and they buried them over the side. And um, there they are in the middle of this battle, which is not over by a long chalk, and they've had this terrible day. And that evening, um, I mean, one flyer wrote, he said, first of all, he was sort of slightly amazed and wasn't sure to be shocked that there were so many white ensign flags, Royal Navy flags on board to be able to give one to each of these corpses. Mm. And after they'd gone over the side, that the um, ship's bugler played the last post and the ship's bugler was a boy of 15. And somehow one forgets that kids that young went to sea, certainly in the Royal Navy in those days. Mm. And the idea of this kid who'd been a witness to all this, standing on the deck playing this. And then they all sang the evening hymn, The Day Thou Gavest, Lord, is Ended. And when the ceremony ended, and the pilot said, although it was terrible, he said somehow, he said, I felt better after that ceremony and so on. And the, and the idea, one can see this picture in the sunset of um, this crew of this terrible bloodstained day, 
and burying their dead. It's, it's such an incredibly moving image. And this kid, um, and there must have been a lot of tears on that flight deck that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you always ask yourself when you, when you read these stories or when you write, you say, could I have done this stuff? I don't know. Did the merchants, uh, merchant marines, did they have any similar burial practices? No, they, uh, they, there are the merchant navy and the U.S. mercantile marine. They were more, on the whole, they were, uh, I mean, they did amazingly well on that trip, but they but it's a different spirit. Um, in fact, one of the best stories, uh, that, uh, of that, there was one of the ships that had been, um, torpedoed quite early on and was damaged and slowed down. And it decided its best chance was to try and slink along, clinging to the North African coast, which in that part of the world in Tunisia was neutral French. And they slink along the coast, and the neutral French sort of half think about stopping, uh, but in the end reluctantly decide to let them go. But then suddenly the captain of the ship, they're faced with a 150-mile dash from the coast of North Africa alone, this ship, through to Malta. And a whole load of the crew form up, and they approach the bridge, and they say to the captain, Captain, this ship is not fit to make this dash alone across the sea, um, that we're already hit, we're already damaged. We're, we're, and um, there he's got, and even the Royal Naval Liaison Officer on the ship uh, says, well, sort of, Captain, I, I think they may have a point, this chap. And the captain, a guy called Fred Riley, and he was a really bloody-minded guy. And he said, no. He said, we are going to get this ship through to Malta. And um, he argued with them, and he got, you know, you can imagine this scene with about sort of 30 or 40 men of his crew stand, not all the crew, but 30 or 40 of them all standing around saying, we don't want to do this. We just go in here and we get interned and we all spend the rest of the war behind bars and it's all going to be nice and cozy. That's the end of the war for us. And this captain said, no, I won't do it. He said, we are going through the Malta. And by sheer force of personality, um, that he persuaded them. And uh, they sail on them miraculously. They make it. They were attacked once more by German aircraft, but the um, Spitfires from Malta came out and they make it. And all alone, they sail into Grand Hong. And that guy, Fred Riley, deserves to be remembered. Because when you've not only got the Germans and the Italians against you, but you've got half your own crew, shaking their fists and saying, you're trying to get us all killed. And he still says, we are going to do this. That's guts. Yeah. Have you been to Malta? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I first went there uh, as an officer cadet in the parachute regiment when I was 17. And uh, um, in those days, it was still a British possession. Uh, the Union Jack was still flying over it. Um, so one had a sort of feel for uh, um, cause I was That was 1963. So it was only about 20 years after pedestal. And uh, um, so, now I've been to Volta quite a few times. I couldn't go this year because of uh, the pandemic. But uh, uh, but I, you know, it's a terrific place. I mean, it's uh, and there's still, even though Malta's been independent for whatever it is, 60, 70 years, mm-hmm. um, that they're still enormously proud of the wartime legacy and the fact that Maltese stuck it. And the amazing thing in the Mediterranean, the 300,000 population of Malta in 1942, most of the Mediterranean. The places the British rule can't stand the British. The Maltese, for reasons that I don't quite understand, they really like the British. They really were loyal to the crown. Mm-hmm. They really were. Um, and the, we talked about the courage of the Royal Navy and the Merchant Navy. The Maltese, the Germans threw more bombs at Malta than they threw at London. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Maltese, they killed a lot of Maltese. They wrecked up half the building on Malta, but the Maltese stuck it. So, um, so I, I'm glad we had the chance to remember what one owed to the Maltese as well. Mm-hmm. And does does Malta today? Does it still show some of the scars from the war? Yeah, they, they've left their pride and joy before the war. Was they had this huge, grandiose Victorian opera hut, and it was a huge, wonderful building, and it was destroyed in the bombing. And they've left the opera house exactly as it was, rubble. Um, uh, as a sort of memorial to up uh, to what they endured, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it was. But the Germans, the Germans had the worst of all worlds. That they expended a huge amount of effort bombing Malta, whereas actually, um, I've argued in my book that if they 
sent in paratroops there instead of Crete. I think they would have taken Malta in 1941 and saved themselves a lot of trouble. But luckily for us, I mean, I forget which generals, British general said to me years ago, um, he said to me about the Second World War, he said, um, and this is a long time ago when British generals were still alive, he said, if we hadn't had Hitler fighting on our side, I don't know how we'd ever have won. <laughs> uh, it's true that if one hadn't had Hitler screwing up so much uh, but, and making all these lousy calls, um, I don't know how we ever would have won. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing to think how how pivotal this, this literally just these few we- these couple weeks were um, in the whole war. Well, those... Um, when one thinks what was going on at that time, and I say the Germans just reaching Stalingrad, and Hitler convinced that victory at that moment is just about within his grasp, and he thinks he's about to get the Caucasian oil fields as well, and that will really, that was the clincher. And so at that moment when the pedestal battle was being fought, um, that all this was still up for grabs, and Churchill was faced with the fact. Churchill had almost despaired the British army. He really... Churchill, because he was himself a hero, he expected everybody else to be heroes. And he was so depressed by the repeated failures of the British Army. Um, and August 1942, they were, I say, at the gates of, almost at the gates of Alexandria. They were right back into Egypt. Mm-hmm. And they'd suffered this pulverizing defeat by smaller numbers of Germans. And in fact, Churchill himself said, he said, if all Rommel's army uh, had been Germans, instead of mostly Italians. He said they would have defeated us. And so they jolly well would. Hmm. Churchill was the one man who always knew that the German army was better than the British army, or dare I say, than the American army of that period. Mm-hmm. Um, it was jolly lucky that we had this enormous industrial power and air power, and also naval power, that we were better at a lot of stuff than they were, thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But as you say, um, as you mentioned before, you know, despite the resources, you know, there's the willpower of the people had decided, you know, enough is enough. We've lost too much. We want to get out. Um, well, it's it, it, the, the great fear still in August 1942 was that the Russians would make a separate peace, that the Russians, uh, that Stalin would, as one has to remember, the Russians hate being reminded of this. But until Hitler invaded the Soviet Union in uh, June 1941, that Stalin was Hitler's ally, that most of the fuel for the Luftwaffe aircraft that bombed London in the Blitz was Russian fuel, and he was supplying the uh, Germans with enormous numbers of quantities of commodities. And the fear that uh, Stalin would make a deal was still a very big factor. This was something they were all still thinking a lot about. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why, but this is why. Churchill understood when he launched the whole pedestal operation, it was not just about Malta. It was about showing the world and showing the Russians and showing the Americans that the British still had the will to fight and were willing to suffer. And Churchill wrote a handwritten note to Stalin listing the losses of pedestal, the fact they'd lost one carrier, sunk one badly crippled, all these cruisers, because he wanted to drive it home to Stalin that the British were not afraid to take those sort of losses. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and their victories would inspire everyone else to continue. You know. it, is, it is so much of war is a contest of wills, and inspiration counts for a lot. And, uh, and it's, this is why uh, occasionally, you know, you get the Churchill, the Churchill deniers who, uh, in one way or another, I mean, Churchill made plenty of mistakes, and I've written about them in my books. But overall, he was by far the greatest war leader for two reasons. One, because he had this, uh, this wonderful command of words. He, he used words as weapons on behalf of the Grand Alliance. And second, because he understood war as a contest of wills. A British historian wrote some years ago a very shrewd phrase about why Roosevelt and Churchill, at the time of Roosevelt's death, were not on such great terms. And, um, the explanation this historian came up with, which I think is absolutely right, he said Roosevelt became jealous of Churchill's genius, and Churchill became jealous of Roosevelt's power. <laughs> and that's a very shrewd remark. So, um, did you have any issues finishing this book? Any any obstacles? No, no, no. It's 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 a wonderful story, and I just felt so lucky to have a chance to tell it because for some reason this story, although one of the biggest naval battles of the war. 
um, certainly in the West, and one of the biggest in the Western, in the Western Hemisphere, that it's relatively little known even by the British. Yeah. And it's just a terrific human story. And it's, it, you don't need to be a Navy buff. You don't need to be, uh, it's, it's just, a, it's always about people. And, you know, that's what I'm always trying to do in my books is, uh, I'm trying to just think all the time about what this was like for people. Mm-hmm. What's your next writing project? I am writing a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. Um, and uh, I've spent most of today uh, writing on that. And uh, um, that, too, is very exciting because one tries to do things in a different way. And, and I'm writing, what I'm trying to do is to set the 1962 crisis in the context of a sort of portrait of what the Soviet Union and Cuba and the United States were like in those days. So I've been up to my neck in uh, in the United States, sort of Chuck Berry, and in the uh, of Soviet Union uh, of rations and cues, and, uh, and uh, of the poet Yevtushenko, in the context of Cuba inevitably, uh, uh, Fidel. Mm. And it is, uh, it is again, absolutely riveting. And, uh, and I just always feel so lucky that these fabulous stories can be told. And the challenge, people always say to me, what can you have new to say about the Cuban Missile Crisis? And I said, well, people did ask me that question before I wrote my book on the Vietnam War. Uh, you know, we've sold the best part of a million copies worldwide. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me that with this book, with Pedestal, that you probably had a flood of information to have to try to sort through. Um, yeah, but it's fun doing it. This is what I do for a living. And, and you get really excited. I mean, the same way with what I'm doing now, that it's the, it's this, you get absolutely carried away by, um, um, I mean, today I've been working on testimony by Russian Soviet missile personnel who served in Cuba. And I just get absolutely gripped by their stories and their experiences and, uh, and, uh, all the stuff that happened in Cuba and what they thought about the Americans, what they thought about the Cubans and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the same way, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was working on all the wonderful oral history accounts from the USAF archive, which again, uh, I luckily had a researcher who was able to work there um, mm. before that. And the accounts of what all these USAF officers thought at the time, and they thought, go in and suck it to them. They thought that the Kennedys were incredibly whacked. They thought this was the unique opportunity to real, really suck the Soviets. And, Boy, I mean, the language they use about the Kennedys is so pure. Mm-hmm. So ultimately then, with Pedestal, what, what do you want readers to take away from this book? That this is a fabulous human story, and it's one of the greatest you're ever going to get about the war at sea. And it, it's even if you, you don't need to be a naval buff in order to find this, this is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an ending. A lot of war stories don't have happy endings. This story had a happy ending, and we do like happy endings, don't we? Yes, yes. So where can people find you online? Uh, MaxHastings.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you'll find me talking about pedestal, and you'll find a clip from this terrific, quite a long clip from this terrific propaganda film made at the time about pedestal, mm-hmm. uh, which got some great shots in it. And also, you know, talking about a lot of other stuff. So, uh, so sure, uh, I'm only delighted. Tune in to the website, and we'll... Um, and keep it coming, guys. And I'll spell that for uh, for my audience. It's m a x h a s t i n g s dot com. All right, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words? No, I'm just. Uh, it's very good of you to have me on the show, Chris. When I look at your backdrop back there, I think that I'm missing something over here because we haven't seen anything like that for a long, long time now. But uh, oh yeah. Uh, it was great to be on the show, and uh, thanks to everybody for uh, listening and watching. All the very best. Thank Bye. you. Thank you. I appreciate it. In the next episode, I speak with Georgios Theotokos about the Crusader warrior Bowman. Slash the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, Check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out.
If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.